0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin and my guest today is a Danish-born novelist and writer. She was the first Dane ever to have short fiction in the magazine The New Yorker. She's published one novella and six novels, including her most recent, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea. In 2017, she was nominated for the Man Booker International Prize for her novel Mirror Shoulder Signal. Doda North welcome to meet the writers thank you very much this new book a line in the world is absolutely beautiful it's a trip through the landscape not only geographically but of your own personal journey and it seems to me that that's where we should start because you were brought up in Herning i'm not sure i'm pronouncing that correctly it
1: oh, sounds lovely <laughs>
0: <laughs> tell me about about your your early childhood in in Herning in Denmark
1: as you say, I, I uh, was born in a suburb to a city called Hanning in, in Denmark, in rural Denmark. And if I should compare it to anything in the UK, I would say Manchester, a quite young city, but very, there was a lot of textile industry and spinning mills and, and stuff. And uh, when I was four years old, my parents bought a little place uh, in the countryside uh, on the moors outside Hanning, and I grew up there in a beautiful remote landscape uh, in the middle of uh, rural, rural Jutland. But my family had, uh, at the same time, a very small hunting cabin, you could say, or a cottage on the North Sea coast. So we spent a lot of time out there because my father went hunting and, and uh, the family came with him. So I grew up in a big landscape, I grew up with a lot of horizon and a lot of sky and a lot of silence and a lot of dream, many dreamy walks into nature. And I became uh, early on very dependent on being in nature and being in the landscape. So when I um, grew older and I had to go to university uh, in, in Aarhus first and then in Copenhagen and I, I urbanized myself, I started
0: longing to, to go home. How do you think that love of, of coastlines, of wildness, of nature has influenced you as a writer? These days,
1: I would say it has influenced me a lot. I didn't understand that in the beginning of my writing career, I think, because uh, I wanted to sound like all the other writers. <laughs> but, but right now, it's, uh, it has influenced the way I perceive things, the need for solitude. Also, the way um, I'm very sensual to impression. I remember when I lived in Copenhagen that I had a feeling that I had to turn down the volume and turn down the visual effects of everything that came pouring against me in the big city uh, noise and faces and stuff. Uh, So my sensuality is, and the way I perceive things, is very linked with nature. So when I write, you, I think you can tell that my metaphors and the way I describe nature is very close to home and very close to how I
0: experience things. This book is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's had completely stunning praise, a beautiful melancholy account of finding home on a restless coast, a wonderful holiday in a very fine writer's heart, lyrical, luminescent. I love seeing this landscape through her eyes. And these are all this is just some of the praise for the book, which absolutely puts one right there. I've never been to that part of Denmark. And honestly, you, you transplant us there in an instant. And that's helped by the wonderful sketches at the beginning of, of each chapter. T- tell us about those, because they're by your very good friend that you went on a trip with to explore that landscape.
1: Yes, and thank you for, for mentioning that you that you enjoyed the book. I'm very grateful for that. Sina Parkins did uh, the drawings, and uh, they were not in the original version But what happened that while I uh, wrote this book, I would go out on trips. I would um, sometimes, uh, most of the time, I would go alone. But on some of my investigative trips, I would uh, bring a friend or somebody who knew something about the landscape where we were going. And um, Sina and I had been uh, talking about for years that we wanted to see all the murals and frescoes of the Danish churches together because she is... Uh, she's an artist and she's a cartoonist she started out as a cartoonist and she's now an artist and one of our best sketches in denmark and draw an artist and she came along on this trip which is also described in the book in uh, the chapter called the timeless and we had so much fun that day it was super interesting experiencing the landscape and through the eyes of somebody who experienced it visually So when Pushkin Press and uh, Grey Wolf Press in the U.S. uh, decided to publish this book, they asked Sina if she could uh, do these drawings. Uh, They're very very sensual. Uh, She's uh, super observant. Uh, When she draws, it's like she goes into a meditative state. You can't even get in touch with her. It's like she's just so focused on what she's doing. And she, uh, she turns out miraculous drawings. Her father is actually British and was also
0: uh, an artist. So, so there's a link there. Mm-hmm. Now, her drawings, as we say, precede every chapter. And in the chapters, you, you very much mix it up. We hear about your childhood memories and then we hear about the landscape, but we also hear about the history of the coast. So, for instance, you talk about Midsummer Eve party and the rituals around that. Tell us more.
1: Yes, the, in the beginning of the book I uh, it's midsummer and I watched one of these bonfires that we make it um, in Denmark uh, on midsummer's eve and it's a tradition in Denmark to burn a witch on these bonfires that is a doll of a woman and uh, these days, there is a lot of controversy, uh, of course, every time around midsummers, that women don't like that tradition. It's a quite sickening one uh, when you look at it. And it's a tradition that uh, is uh, from the 1920s. It's not that old. You should think that it was from ancient times, but it's actually quite new. Uh, somebody thought it was a fun idea to symbolize evil with a witch and then burn it on this bonfire. Because from uh, ancient times, what we did on these bonfires were that that we uh, would burn all the evil. We would burn all the bad energy and all the the horrible stuff as we would go into winter and into the darker times again. Um, I believe that with new generations, this uh, horrifying tradition will slowly disappear. I hope so but it is still a thing that uh, a lot of people do on midsummer's eve in denmark
0: burning a witch or a troll they sometimes burn a man as well <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go back even further in history uh, to the battle of jutland yes now there are some bones that have been washed up from that battle thousands of people died there 8000 i think drowned in that battle alone tell us more about uh, about the bones being found there it's, uh,
1: I, I experienced once I met met some tourists on the beach who had found a jawbone from a, a skull, a human skull, and they were terrified. And they asked me what to do, what to do. And I said, you better call the police, even though I could tell that this jawbone was very, very old. And I had just moved here. So I didn't understand that human remains sometimes did wash up on the shores. And, and you don't necessarily, uh, it, it's not, it's not a murder case. It's um, it's something that is kind of natural to this coastline because the sea eats away at the land. And a lot of uh, bodies have been buried in the sand and in, in the landscape uh, throughout the ages. So these bones will be washed out and, and returned. Mm. And then um, there is also these enormous battles uh, that has taken place during First World War, second World War in the North Sea. and all the shipwrecks, there's all the deaths that happen at sea. And of course there will be human remains from that and sometimes they they wash ashore. It, it sounds macabre, but when you live here, it becomes I wouldn't say natural. It's not like we stumble over uh, skulls and bones, but it happens. and um, people who live here
0: regard it as a natural thing. Mm. Yeah. The sea can be a very dangerous place. And I think you experienced that yourself with your mother. Yes. Um,
1: And when I was uh, 11 years old, we went to the sea on a warm August day. And then this huge wave came pouring in. And uh, it sort of grabbed me around my ankles and pulled me out. And my mom grabbed hold of me. And uh, we sort of were drawn across the, the landscape or the, the rubble in the, in the beach.
0: And um, it was so terrifying. And I'm still afraid of uh, waves because of that. But not of swimming in the sea? Is the sea something you still very much interact with by going into the water? Uh, I go into the water, but I don't
1: like uh, swimming in it. It's, uh, and it's because I'm, I have a very big respect for water and especially the north sea because there is an undertow and it draws you down and then so what i will do on a hot summer day is i go into the ocean i find a place where it's safe i read the the beach and then i just kind of just stand there and uh, let the waves uh, softly move over me and most danes will do that in the north sea um I can always tell when it is a tourist because they swim up and down the the coast and it's a bit dangerous to do that, actually.
0: Yeah. I mean, being so intimately involved with the coast, you must also have seen the horrific effects of climate change. Uh, And I know that uh, there is a chemical factory that you write about. Tell us more about that and and the protests about it being there by a brave Danish fisherman.
1: Yes, of course... um, there will be climate issue and also environmental issues uh, in uh, in these landscapes uh, and especially at these times. The little hunter's cabin that we have, I call it the secret place, was placed and is placed uh, right across from a very big uh, chemical plant called Cheminova, and uh, they had a depot, a poison depot, uh, where they poured in poison. In the most pristine landscape. You can't even fathom that anyone could do that. I mean, it's still a puzzle to me who came up with an idea to store tons and tons and tons of poison in a pristine landscape. So soon after they did that in the 60s, uh, the 1960s, uh, birds starting dying, fish starting dying. And there was a man, uh, a fisherman called uh, Owe, who uh, started protesting And he's called the first danish environmentalist and he was not your common freedom fighter he was uh he was just a common man he was a man who knew his landscape and loved the birds and the fish and who was heartbroken that that everything that he loved was being destroyed by the the poison that was cooking in the underground so he was a local hero you could call him and he He raised his son to fight as well. And uh, I mean, in the middle of of the process of writing this book, the Danish government finally donated money to clean up this landscape. So it took two generations of uh, men from this family to to have that happen. Uh, These days, uh, the landscape is doing better, much better around Kiminova. But that's just one of the issues that we, of course, have to struggle with on, on the coastline.
0: Mm. I mean, you talk about a huge storm that hit Denmark that had cliffs crashing down into the sea.
1: There are constantly storms coming in from uh, from the North Sea, from Scotland, from Norway. They, they draw in and uh, it's part of the life here that they come and they take something and they damage the coastline. They also add something to it at times, but... Uh, They will ruin stuff. And um, in 1978, uh, there was a storm that tipped over a beautiful, beautiful sort of monolite cliff called Cliff. And uh, I remember it because it happened at the same time as my uncle Erling died in a car crash. And my father was so, he was so sad about his loss. And for some reason, I remember him, Uh, watching on the television the news that the scar cliff had fallen and I think it was one of the first memories I had where I understood how permanent death was Uh, not only that this uncle would never come back but also that you can of course not lift a cliff out of the sea again and put it on his pedestal and have the birds come back and live on it it's gone forever when it when it falls um, so I, I wrote about that as well in um, in the book. And also, I'll say that going into the landscape was also meeting all these memories, because when I went to look at the place where Scarcliffe used to be, on, on a place called Bulbia, I had completely forgotten that whole story about my uncle. I, of course, still knew that he had died in a car crash, but I, I hadn't uh, any memory of how the family... Felt at that point, but when I went there and I looked at that little, little piece of rock that is left from Cliff, I suddenly remembered it and the connection between landscape and place and memory is quite something. And I knew that I had to adopt memory and how we perceive reality when we go into a landscape and had to
0: incorporate that in in the book. And do you think that somehow that memory can be generational? You talk about your mother's bright red hair and and the the whole sort of link to the Vikings and of course the sea and particularly that sea was so integral to the Vikings and to that that migration. Do you think at some level there's some sort of DNA memory, perhaps? There might be, and it's an interesting.
1: Uh notion that there might be. I mean, at least in the red hair, there is a there is a memory in the hair because that color of hair came from the British Isles, came from the Celts. I remember in school being told, because I'm a redhead myself and my mom was, that uh, that I was not an original dame, you could say, <laughs> that some of me must have come from Ireland or or over there because that specific mark was something that the Vikings uh, brought home. Basically, we had the ancestors who were slaves because that was what the Vikings did. They took slaves and brought them home. Uh, so um, in that respect, yes. And also, I think if you do make sort of DNA analysis of uh, the gene pool of of the Danes, you will see that we have all sorts of links to the world. And I think it's very important to remember that, to understand that we did not come from ourselves. We came from connections. We came from trade. We came from moving. We came from, I mean, even all these people whose ships were wrecked on this uh, coastline, Some of, not all of them drowned. Some of them, crawled on land, found themselves a local girl and uh, had kids. So we are a sort of a very big pool of, of the world. And so am I,
0: according to my head collar, you know. <laughs> yes. You talking about fishermen, I mean, obviously, there's a huge connection to, to fishing communities. I mean, you tell one story about how women who lose their husbands at sea sort of almost live communally.
1: Yes, on the, the island uh, in which is a North Frisian island in the south of uh, Denmark, they were very rich, and they have husbands who, uh, who sailed the world in very big ships. When they were gone and trading on the sea, uh, the women would rule the village. They were rich and they were powerful, and they would sort of, yeah, they would be in charge. And uh, sometimes their husbands would never return home, and then they would be widows in this community. Uh, so it was a place where women had to take charge. They had to be in powers. It was a matriarchy. And um, because they were hardly, the only men who were home were the little boys and the old men. It was a different kind of uh, social structure and a different kind of power structure. And this community is really interesting to investigate uh, because... Uh, There you can see what happens when when women are running the place. And um, it's not all good. I mean, there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of social control in that uh, community. But there was also a lot of empowerment and different ways of settling, different ways of coping and surviving and uh, quite interesting place. Mm -hmm. So if you ever come
0: here, you should go to Fano and see the village that these women made. And there's a, there's a traditional clothing that comes from there too.
1: Yes, it's a beautiful uh, skirt and, and blouse and they have this wonderful, wonderful cloth around their their head that is that they tie it so that it looks like a sail because they're, of course, women of the sea. And it's obvious that they don't walk around in that uh, in everyday life uh, anymore. And I would say that the women who were brought up using that cloth are long gone. They stopped using it traditionally in the 1970s, but they still use it for parties. And they still use it in the summertime when all the tourists come. Uh, it's like they dress up. So it becomes very picturesque. And it was a uniform. It was a way of saying, I come from here and I'm proud of that. And I and everything, the buttons, the cloth, the colors of the skirt would be signals on, where you were in the hierarchy, how old you were, whether you were married or not, whether your man was at sea or not. There was a lot of symbolism in that in that outfit. That is quite intriguing.
0: Mm. You give us a, a wonderful snapshot of uh, the story of a young Frisian boy in 1917. Tell us about him sailing the North Sea on his schooner.
1: This is a real person called Löwe, and he um, he sailed with apples and tulips from Groningen in, um, in Holland, up the coastline in 1917, and when he came to the coast where I live now, he uh, he didn't have enough respect for the reefs here, so he stranded, and uh, all his tulips, uh, of course, crashed out of the of the boat and ended up on the beach, and he and he and his uh, and his crew also ended up on the beach. They all survived. They were rescued, and brought to the local manor house here. And Löwe uh, fell in love with uh, the girl of this manor house, the the oldest daughter, Begida, and married her. And um, I didn't know this when I wrote the book, but I met a local man who said, I know where Begida ended. And I said, do you know where she went? And she said, yeah, she died in South Africa. And it turns out that this woman that Löwe married had the most remarkable life. That might be uh, book number two, who knows? (laughs) But it, just, but it just says something about the energy of living on a coastline like this that some a ship wrecks on on the coast and suddenly you're swooped out of the landscape and your life you know takes weird turns and you end up in South Africa
0: yeah extraordinary yeah. so much shipping ancient but also modern tell us about the the shipping lanes around there the container ships what else you observe on the very northern spit of denmark
1: Well, that is one of the most uh, busy uh, straits of uh, water in the world. And uh, a lot of container ships, like a lot, uh, come from uh, the North Sea. And they have to go down over the the tip of Denmark, which is called Skåne, or the Skål, and into the Baltics. So they just lay there. Sometimes they just lay there for days and days and days. And they wait for uh, new directions from their companies and whether they should go north or or whether they should go south. And it's quite a sight if you ever go there to see these. It's like they're big camels in a caravan just sitting there in the watery desert waiting for a place to go. I don't know uh, what it's like right now after uh, the war in the Ukraine broke out. There will, of course, uh, the, the restrictions uh, we'll probably have put a pause on some of that because a lot of the goods that went in and out were Russian. So it's also been a place where the Cold War and probably also the the war that we are facing now, is very visual because that's a place in Denmark where you control the waters between Norway and between Sweden and you control everything that goes into the Baltic Sea. Mm. So um, it's a very powerful place.
0: We started by talking about midsummer, and I'd like to talk now about winter solstice. Uh, you talk about the national park is known as the Cold Hawaii. Yes, that's interesting. Um, it used to be
1: a small uh, fisher village called Klitmuller, and it was slowly dying. Nobody wanted to settle there anymore. And uh, the fishermen even stopped fishing from there, and it was... Um, becoming a very sad place. But then in the 70s, German surfers started showing up because they could tell that there were good surfs there and good waves. And then over the years, surfers from all over the world started trickling to that place. They uh, sorted out in the beginning just for their vacations, but then they started buying houses, building houses, changing the demography of that place completely. It is today called uh, the Cold Hawaii. In the beginning, it was just around this uh, fisherman village, which is now a a town, I would say. But the surfer culture and that specific Cold Hawaiian culture um, has uh, drifted up and down the coast. So we see it in different spots up and down the coast. And it's an interesting culture. They're very environmental. They settle there because they're young and... uh, athletic and they're quite often well-educated. They also bring along spouses and that means they also have children and that is good for the schools and the villages. So uh, there are communities up and down the coast that are prospering from surfer culture, which is a more healthy culture than tourism because tourists come and go. Uh, They're there for a week, they have fun and then they leave again. Uh, The surfers integrate with the landscape and with the culture there Mm. and they're quite beautiful they're i mean they're young young people and uh i'm so scared of what they do i sometimes just sit there and observe them i don't even know how they have the nerve to go out there with a surfboard and then and then and just wait for
0: for these big uh, breakers i'm quite astonished. <laughs> you talk about tourism and you also mention in, in the book that locals see you as a tourist, tourists see you as a local. And I wonder where on this wonderful coast you feel you belong.
1: When I started out writing it, I felt like I belong at the, the place where we have the little hunter's capping called uh, the secret place. And then where I live, which is on the central west coast in uh, a village called Bärösö. But I noticed that after writing the book, it didn't matter where I went, I would feel home. Then it suddenly became the sea itself. I remember coming from a festival in East Denmark and I had to drive all the way through Denmark to another festival on this coastline. And I, it was not close to home, but I remember walking down to the sea when I arrived and thinking, God, I'm home. And I was about 200 kilometers from home, but it suddenly hit me that this entire landscape had become my place suddenly, just for writing about it and learning more about the history up and down this coastline. And um, it's a very comforting feeling that there are 500 kilometers of coast where I feel at home. There are some places that uh, that are more ruined by tourism than others, and I uh, obviously prefer the ones that are not ruined by tourism. I
0: prefer the places that are pristine and still wild. Well, Jorda, thank you so much for introducing us to this wonderful, wonderful coastline. No, thank you for having me. A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea by Dorda Norse is published by Pushkin Press and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to producer Nora Hole and researcher Emily Sands. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.